Well, good morning. It is uh, just after 9 o'clock. Tom Rafferty's sitting in for, my goodness, that's kind of loud, isn't it? Sitting in for Paul Healy this morning. Good morning. Hopefully you're having a great Thursday, January 4th. Just remember, in a couple of days, it'll be the three-year anniversary of the infamous Washington Insurrection, January 6th, 2021. Welcome in. Great to be here. And uh, Paul Healy is out for the day. He is on holiday. Him and Carol are somewhere doing something that's very, very important. So anyway, good to be here, and uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll be here till 12 o'clock. I think we have a terrific show for you. In about, uh, about seven or eight minutes, we should be getting a call from Jeff Hall. He is one of the media spokesmen for the American Red Cross in Massachusetts. His headquarters is in Medford, but he does travel extensively throughout the Commonwealth uh, to promote and help out with the American Red Cross. They are a great, great organization uh, full of dedicated people, uh, dedicated workers. I can't say enough about the American Red Cross. I think we have, uh, let's take a look here. I think we have some calls. Good morning. You're on WARA. Hello, is it Tom? It is. Hello, Agent 2, or Agent 5, I'm sorry. (laughs) 5. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to demote you. (laughs) (laughs) I am on the way to uh, do my volunteer work at the pantry, and I just thought I'd say hey and have a good show. I don't get to listen much when I'm there. Well, that's okay. I just wanted to say hi and and have a great uh, show and have a great day. Well, thank you. You are part of the program right now. What you uh, let me tell you what you're going to miss. <laughs> Jeff Hall from the Red Cross, Michael Borg, the town manager of North Attleboro, and Mim Fawcett, the executive director and chief curator of the Attleboro Arts Museum. So aren't you sad that you're going to be doing all that great volunteer work and miss the program? I know. (laughs) If it's not busy, I can tune in and listen for a bit, but that rarely gets to happen. That's okay. But sometimes it does. But hopefully maybe I'll be able to sneak a listen. All right. Well, Well, thank you. you. Great guests. Have fun. Okay. Thank you very much. There goes Agent 5 all the way from the great town of Norfolk, Massachusetts. And uh, what a great town Norfolk is. The houses are so beautiful, and uh, I love the street signs. They're they're decorated, and they're they're kind of like artistically done. So if you ever have a chance to drive through Norfolk, uh, take a good notice at what you're seeing, because that's a that's a great community. Five minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock, welcome in. It's about 34 degrees on the outside. Meteorologist Jim Corbin calling for mostly cloudy skies, perhaps a spot shower or flake a little bit later. A little bit of sunshine late today, high in the low 40s. Northwest winds 10 to 20 miles an hour. For tonight, becoming clear, breezy and cold, low near 20. And for tomorrow, Friday... Sunshine, cold, high in the low 30s, 
And Saturday, some fading sunshine, high in the mid-30s, some rain and snow by late evening. And according to all media sources that we've been watching and keeping in tuned with, could get some snow into Sunday. Rather windy, lighter snow during the afternoon, high in the low 30s. Sunshine returns on Monday. I would invite you to tune in tomorrow during the morning show with Dominic Katoya because Jim will have the latest on what could be, could be, they're saying, in some areas of Massachusetts, we could be getting six inches. However, down here, it might just be a rain mixture, maybe a little bit of sleep. But uh, make sure you tune in to Jim tomorrow. He'll give you all the latest on the AM 1320 Metro Weather Forecast. 34 degrees. Jeff Hall is in the wings waiting for us. He is the media spokesman in Medford. He handles a lot of the communications with uh, different media outlets. He's been with the Red Cross quite a while. And uh, we'll talk about the services, blood drives, emergencies that happen, and uh, how the Red Cross comes to the aid of many, many people. As a matter of fact, Michael Borg, our second-hour guest in studio, probably has been dealing with some American Red Cross people in North Attleboro because of the torrential flash floods that happened in September. There's still still cleaning that up, and uh, uh, we'll ask him a little bit about that and uh, if they're getting uh, federal disaster monies. That's one of the things we can talk about with Michael Borg. He is the town manager for the town of North Attleboro. And wrapping up the show a little bit later on, Mim Fawcett, executive director, chief curator of the Attleboro Arts Museum. One other thing I wanted to bring up, it was uh, terrific to see all of the uh, swearing-in ceremonies of the Attleboro elected officials, the mayor, Kathleen Simone, the city council, the new folks, uh, Kate Jackson as the um, Attleboro, uh, well, actually, it was kind of like Kate was... Uh, uh, reading the oath to about everybody else, and, and Mayor uh, Simone read the oath and gave her the oath uh, for her position, city clerk. Uh, great program. Loved it. Uh, it was really, really interesting. A uh, lot, of, lot of faces that I recognized there, and it was so nice to really see a positive, positive evening with the Attleboro High School Band, the choir sounded terrific. Uh, every little part of it was really, really good. I'm glad that I, I attended. I kind of uh, uh, took the day away from my other responsibilities. I said, I'm going in there and I'm going to take a look. By the way, uh, first time I've ever been in the new auditorium of the Attleboro High School. Super. Wow. Very nice. I'd like to see the rest of the high school. I've only been in there two or three times now and very limited, but it's gorgeous inside. Really, really nice. So congratulations to all of the new city council folks and uh, congratulations to the school committee. 
and all of the other elected officials. Uh, Kathleen DeSimone's uh, inaugural speech for her first two-year uh, mayorship uh, was really uplifting, very positive. Let's get to work. Let's work together. Uh, one of the things she mentioned, and I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye out for it, is discussions on a new senior center in Attleboro, a new building somewhere where they can have more room, more space, everything. Just uh, really uh, an invigorating a speech by Mayor Kathleen DeSimone. If you'd like to join us, 508-222-1320. We have a few minutes uh, before our guest is here or will be calling on the phone lines. And uh, could talk about anything that you'd like to talk about. Uh, I just read in today's Sun Chronicle that... Depending on the decision by the, uh, by the courts in one of the states, the Supreme Court is expected to decide whether Donald Trump can run for president. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to determine whether former President Donald Trump can keep running for the White House. Trump yesterday appealed a ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court that he's ineligible for the presidency because he violated a rarely used constitutional prohibition on those who hold office having engaged in, in insurrection. On Tuesday, he appealed a similar ruling from Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, but it's the Colorado appeal that's most significant. Now, if they rule that he cannot run then, uh, you know, the Supreme Court's probably going to have to decide that issue. And if they decide he can't run, then all of the other states are going to follow suit. We are awaiting uh, Jeff Hall, communications specialist from the American Red Cross. I thought maybe the phone line lit up there for a second. But uh, we'll see what happens. Tom Rafferty with you, sitting in for... Uh, Paul Healy on this Thursday. Good morning. You're on WARA. Hello. Hey, good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thank you for joining us this morning. How are things in Medford, Massachusetts? Or maybe you're not even in Medford, Mass. Oh, yeah, they're good today. Uh, a little cloudy, but, uh, you know, we're trying to, like everybody else, watching what this weather's going to be like over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh I was telling our listeners earlier that, uh, you know, the American Red Cross is one of the most uh, important, whoop, wait a minute, whoops, sorry about that, is one of the most important organizations, I think, in this country, and uh, they go to the aid of people everywhere. As a matter of fact, there was some flash flooding down here in the Attleboro area in September, and I'm sure that representatives came down here because there were so many people, over 200 homeowners had damage. Do you recall that, having someone down in this area? I do. We had, uh, we had four people uh, working with the Department of Public Works there, handing out cleanup kits to people mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, very popular. I think we ran out three days in a row. Uh, you know, we were working with uh, local officials to try to just figure out what the local need was. Uh, but yeah, we were down there in Attleboro. Uh, we were busy in Lemonster at the same time with flooding there. Yeah, it was, it's been a uh, it's been a strange it was a strange 2023. Mm-hmm. Very good. Jeff Hall is with us on the phone lines, communication specialist. What does a typical day, you know, tell us a little bit about what a typical day is for you when there are emergencies, when there are, you know, places that the Red Cross is needed, whether it be car accidents, fires, people getting burned out of their homes. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you do, Jeff. Yeah, I think most people, when they hear the Red Cross, they think of two things. They think uh, a way to donate blood to help their local community, and they think about uh, tornadoes and natural disasters where they see the the red vest out helping people. Uh, That's pretty much what we're known for. Uh, We do both of those things here locally in Massachusetts. Uh, Every day we have phlebotomists and and lab techs out on the road uh, going to mobile blood drives, and at our fixed site collecting blood. And we have people who stand basically a phone watch all day, 24 hours a day, every day, every other year, uh, to assist local fire departments when we get a call about home fires. Mm-hmm. So when we get those calls, we, uh, we send a, we call them disaster action teams. We send those volunteers out to fires and they speak with the clients who've been displaced by fires. And uh, we help them emotionally, and we help them with uh, advice on getting their life back on track and what the next steps are, and we offer financial assistance free of charge. That's absolutely terrific and uh, just excellent work. Um, Jeff Hall on the phone lines with us from the American Red Cross. If you have a comment or a question, maybe you have had experience with the Red Cross. Maybe they've helped you in some way. You can call us. There is another phone line at 508-222-1320. You can go on the air with Jeff, uh, make a comment or a question as we move along. Jeff, we talked about the five missions of the Red Cross. I can't remember all of them. I know you said military. What were the rest of them? Yeah, so the two most popular are blood, our blood services department, which, you know, collects and supplies. We supply 75% of the blood in, that's needed in Massachusetts. Uh, we have our disaster services that respond to home fires, natural disasters. Uh, we have a, a service to the armed forces, forces branch. Uh, they help active duty military and, uh, and veterans, their families, uh, either when they're entering the military or when they're getting out of the military, we try to take a holistic approach to help just another, another area of help for military members and veterans. Uh, we also have some international services where we help connect people with their families after they've been separated after conflicts or uh, natural disasters. And, and we're currently doing that uh, with, with in, in several countries in Africa and in Ukraine. Uh, so if, if there was a Ukrainian-American uh, here in the United States uh, that couldn't get in touch with a family member in Europe, uh, we have connections through various international Red Cross services 
to be able to try to make contact with people. So that's that's one of the little lesser known uh, things we do around the world, and, and that that's actually keeps us quite busy. We have a we have a very committed group of volunteers in Massachusetts that uh, works with people just trying to find family members uh, from across the uh, from across the world. And that's it's a very very satisfying, very fulfilling mission. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of other. Uh disasters, other natural disasters, fires, earthquakes. I'm sure that the American Red Cross had people uh, very, very quickly in Hawaii when Maui and a couple of the other islands were were really burning up uh, forestry and literally burning uh, in parts of the island where it was just in, incredibly dangerous. Um, can you talk about what they did in Hawaii? Because uh, I'm sure they're still recovering from that. And it was such a shame to see what a, a natural, beautiful state, uh, you know, for tourists and what they went through there with their fires. Yeah, it was just a tragic situation in Maui uh, in 2023 uh, when, when wildfires ravaged, ravaged the island. Uh, we actually sent a handful of volunteers from Massachusetts there. Uh, they spent three to four weeks there helping residents uh, either that were either in shelter, shelters across the island, and just helping them uh, restart their lives. Uh, you know, when, when you've been burnt and helping them apply for federal programs uh, that, to get them back into, back out of hotels or shelters and back into homes. Mm-hmm. So uh, they worked pretty extensively for three or four weeks at a time. Uh, anybody that's ever stayed in a shelter, if you've been forced out of your home or through a natural disaster, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a terrific place to spend a few weeks. So they try to work with people and children the best they can to make it as comfortable as possible. And that's, it, it's really just being part of the community, uh, helping people see that there is an end to this and that there will be you know, a better day that's coming and it's, it's just a lot of emotional and psychological work with folks uh, when they're going through something terrible. So that's really what our volunteers do. They provide a, a shoulder to lean on and, uh, and warm food and a safe place to stay. And that's really what we try to do in any natural disaster. Mm-hmm. Jeff Hall with us on the phone lines. He is a communications specialist from the American Red Cross. I know that... Uh, uh, how long have you been with the Red Cross, Jeff? And uh, I know you've worked your way up to other positions. What did you start out doing and then now with your current position? Yeah, I've been with the Red Cross for about eight years now. Uh, I've, I've done my career in the past before I joined the Red Cross has been in working with local communities and, uh, and, the, and the news media to make sure that they understand uh, what the organization is doing uh, to help people. Uh, I mean, most recently we had a fire out in Holyoke, Massachusetts that displaced four families, 16 total people. And so we just, we help talk about the needs in the community and what our volunteers are doing to help people. Uh, you know, we offer our services free of charge. So, uh, we take donations from people that help us run our mission. Uh, so it's, it's important to keep the public aware of how the Red Cross uh, benefits local communities. So that's really part of my job. 
and I was in the military for 20 years before this, uh, doing essentially the same thing. And uh, it was, it's just, it's a very, it's been very rewarding. Mm -hmm. I can imagine uh, the American Red Cross is one of those organizations that have been the the absolute savior and uh, uh, an organization that helps people when they are in critical, dire circumstances. Um, and there's a lot of other things that the Red Cross does. Um, you're in the Medford office. I know one of, I believe what I've been told is that Dedham, Massachusetts, isn't that one of the largest uh, blood centers and platelet centers. I know a lot of people go in there to, to donate blood. Um, in your job, you travel around to some of the other places. Yeah, Dedham, Massachusetts is, our, is the Northeast Region uh, bio, Biomedical Services Processing Site uh, for the states of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. So all, all donated blood in those states uh, are is, are delivered down to the Dedham facility, uh, where they are uh, processed and turned into the blood products that hospitals and cancer treatment centers need to help patients. Mm -hmm. So it's a uh, it's an enormous facility uh, where you know, all the blood is that comes in is tested and uh, and just broken down into the various components that hospitals require to help people. So it's it's a big operation. Uh, it's, it runs 24 hours a day. Uh, I know we always worry when these snowstorms come, like we make sure we have uh, backup generators because just because the power goes out, uh, that facility still has to continue to work because, I mean, the ho hospitals don't stop needing the products that we create and send to them. So it's, uh, it's, it's an impressive site. And uh, I, I guess if you wanted to volunteer at the Red Cross, you could probably get a tour of it. It's, it's interesting on the inside to see how the work is done and how they break down mm -hmm. a single blood donation into the various products. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I've been in the shipping area as a part of my job. I've also been over to where they donate blood. That is a beautiful, beautiful state-of-the-art area uh, with a lot of trained uh, volunteers. Uh, I have met well, probably 40 or 50 different people at the Dedham uh, American Red Cross, what quality people they are, very caring, you know, if something's awry or wrong, uh, they make sure it gets corrected. Um, a lot of people go in there and take blood and they are so meticulous. I want to make sure this is the correct blood, the correct amount going here. I mean, it's, uh, it's really an organization that is well organized from top to bottom. Jeff, we do have to take a quick break here. I'm going to ask you to just uh, wait on the line for about two minutes, and then we'll return. And when we come back, we'll talk about donating blood, maybe some fundraisers, vaccination efforts now that COVID kind of is ramping up a little bit. So we'll be right back with Jeff Hall right after these words. And welcome back on this Thursday. January 4th, 2024, we're into a new year and uh, really nice to have aboard with us Jeff Hall, communication specialist from the American Red Cross. Um, Jeff, um, there are so many ways 
to help out with the American Red Cross. One of them, obviously, is giving blood. How does one get involved in that? How do you find out where you can do it and what some of the stipulations or rules might be about giving blood? Yeah, but I think the best way to get started if you've never donated blood before is to go to redcrossblood.org. Uh, that's our website that has several several different uh, key components for a new blood donor. Uh, it has a frequently asked question page uh, that really covers just about everything, every question you have. You know, if, if you're taking certain medications for any kind of health conditions you have, it will run down uh, if you're taking a certain medication, whether you can donate blood or not. So that eliminates a lot of the questions right there. Uh, basically, if you're in generally good health, uh, you're eligible to donate blood. If, if, I mean, if you have a tattoo recently, uh, there might be a deferment for a month or two, uh, but that's all covered on that frequently asked questions page. Uh, and another another thing on that page is uh, on that website is you t- you can type your zip code in, and it will give you the closest blood drive to your location. And that usually stretches out about two months in advance. So if uh, you can set a radius range, and if you want to go to something within five miles of your home, uh, it will spit that out for you and and uh, allow you to make an appointment. Mm-hmm. Is is there um, what I I did go on the website? I looked and, and basically this may not be the rule of thumb all the time, but it says most people who are relatively healthy can donate every fifty six days perhaps six times a year, but you have to be 16 years old, correct? That's correct, yes. If you, if you want to do a whole blood donation, and that's probably what most people think of uh, if they're thinking about giving blood, it's where you give the pint of blood into the plastic bag. That's approximately every two months you can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are other options available, uh, platelets and plasma donations. Those do take a little bit longer and you're hooked to a machine during your donation. Uh, but it just gets different, different products that hospitals and treatment centers need. Uh, usually people, if they've ever donated before, they start with a whole blood donation. And that you generally takes about one hour uh, from start to finish. From the time, if your appointment's at 11, 11 a.m., you get there, you do a brief uh, interview, uh, they do a health history, uh, they do a small test up at the drop of your blood, and uh, and then you get taken over, uh, put onto a donation bed, and uh, you make your donation. And then you, you have a little bit of recovery time, uh, having a snack and some juice, just to make sure that uh, the donation went well for you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pretty much about an hour uh, can be allocated for that for your whole blood donation. Is there one type of blood that is more critically needed for supplies than another? Um, basically, four blood types, right? Uh, there's A, B, A, B, and O, and all have a positive or negative component. Uh, o negative is the most sought-after blood type, and uh, if you've ever given blood and you are O negative, uh, people will tell you that uh, you are the most highly sought-after blood donor. Uh, It's the universal donor. So anybody can receive that blood. So in a trauma situation in a hospital, when there is no time uh, to type cross and type a patient, 
uh, for their blood type. They just use O negative blood. So it's uh, used in trauma situations, and it's very valued. Uh, we try to take care of those O negative blood donors. Uh, but really, at this time, any kind of blood donation is needed. Uh, you know, if, even if you, are, if you are an O positive donor like me, uh, you know, I'm a universal receiver, so I can take any type of blood. Uh, but O positive is needed just like any other blood type. So uh, we encourage people... If they've never tried it, you know, make your resolution for 2024 to try giving blood for the first time. It's uh, mm -hmm. virtually painless, and uh, what you do for your local community is it almost can't be measured, the, the amount of good that you do. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there any type uh, times of the year that blood is needed more critically than others? I mean, we're, we're in the winter season now. We don't have a lot of snow yet, but... Is it more needed in cold weather here in this country, or would it be in the warm months? Well, historically, uh, the holiday season and summers, we see the, the greatest downturn in donations. Uh, I think the need is probably constant. It's steady. Uh, but we see our donor numbers dip during the holidays when people are busy. And we do a lot of business at uh, local colleges, universities with blood donations. So when they break for the summer, uh, you know, we don't have those regularly scheduled blood drives going on. So every summer and every holiday season, we see our numbers dip down. Uh, we generally try to prepare for that, uh, but we do the best we can to maintain a, you know, a level where we're servicing the, the hospitals and treatment centers the best we can. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's always a need for blood. There's, I would say there's, in, in the times we live in now, there's almost never a blood surplus in the United States. So uh, blood is always, always needed. We, since the pandemic broke, uh, I think they said we've lost nearly 300,000 regular blood donors in the United States. So uh, those folks just have not come back hmm. uh, like they did pre-pandemic. So uh, the need for blood is, is it's, it's always there, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's trouble getting don new donors in the door sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's why one of the reasons why your job is so critical to make sure you're communicating with every outlet you can and every source that you can to let people know about blood drives. I know in my job I have picked up, oh my goodness, many, many, Usually it's the children's. You've seen those big buses where they park somewhere where there's a lot of traffic. Uh, we have done the children's blood drive where, oh, my gosh, there are a lot of people that go there. Um, can you find out more about blood drives and where they are on the website? You can, yep. On the website, it tells you where – it will tell you where all our fixed site locations are, that they're, they're generally open seven days a week. Uh, and I believe there's seven of seven of those around the around Massachusetts, uh, and then daily uh, in most of Massachusetts we have mobile blood drives at uh, various locations. Churches, uh, American legions are, are are a great place where we hold blood drives. So community-based drives are happening all over the state every day. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's a good way. You know, a lot of people that donate blood have a personal connection because they've had something happen in their lives or one of the, or a loved one has needed blood. And uh, they're our greatest champions to tell the story. And uh, that's, we, we always try to, you know, make that human connection 
for donors. You know, the, the blood that a person gives, uh, it really does good in your local community. It, it, to people that are in need, either going through cancer treatment or somebody that's been in a car accident, uh, there's just no time to wait. The, the blood just has to be there when it's needed. So that's mm-hmm. why we encourage people. Absolutely. On the phone lines, Jeff Hall. He is the communications specialist for the American Red Cross here in Massachusetts. He is uh, out of the Medford office, but actually he travels the state, all over the state, when uh, emergencies happen, when uh, his expertise with media relations is needed. Do you ever travel, you know, does, does this area cover... I mean, I know in my travels with, with my company, I go everywhere, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, New York. Do do you cover those states too, or is there a, you know, a, an office, say, in Montpelier or in, you know, uh, Bangor, Maine, where you guys can really uh, keep in touch with them and, and kind of network with them? Uh, we do talk to our counterparts in other states. Uh, generally, I work in Massachusetts only, uh, but I have deployed around the country uh, when na- big natural disasters strike and they need people to go down and, and do the grunt work, work in a shelter, uh, work in the field, uh, making sure people are fed. Uh, but I, I've done that also. I've deployed uh, to Florida. It was the last time I deployed during the hurricane mm-hmm. and uh, to help people out. So, uh you know, if that's, if that's something people really, you know, if they want to volunteer, you, you just don't have to volunteer in your local community. You can sign up to deploy and, and go to places like Hawaii to help people or Florida or, or California during the wildfire season. Mm-hmm. I know we, we're starting to see we're starting to see winter tornadoes all over the country, too, in Tennessee and Kentucky. So the, the natural disasters, you know, they, it's, it's a year-round uh, business. So if, if you... If you have that desire to help people and you, you, know, you want to travel and see different parts of the country and help people, uh, the Red Cross is a great way. Yes. As a matter of fact, we should mention that volunteer opportunities are always available with the American Red Cross. I know being in Dedham, I've met several people that go in there. Red Cross volunteers doing a variety of tasks um, how does one uh, start the process of possibly volunteering or 10 or 15 hours a week? Do you go to the Red Cross? Is there a call you should make? Who, who would be the first person to take a step toward volunteering? The easiest way is to use our website, uh, redcross.org, and uh, there's a volunteer tab that starts the process, or you could call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Uh, there are so many different things that we do. You know, if, if you want to interact face-to-face with people, uh, you can do that. If you're not that type of person and you want to work in the background, we have lots of opportunities to do that. Uh, we have logistics work. Sorry about that, Jeff. Go ahead. We, yeah, no problem. We, yeah, we have logistics work. We have behind-the-scenes. We have forward-facing. You can work at a, at a blood donation site. You can help people recover from a home fire. Uh, you can help do... You know, office work, uh, working and creating spreadsheets to track uh, people affected by disaster, or just uh, help, help. you know, we're a 95% volunteer-led organization. So we don't, I think we only have about 65 Red Cross employees in Massachusetts. 
Wow. And, uh, you can sign up to volunteer to help me or anybody else in my it, that works uh, across the state help us help people uh, more efficiently and effectively. That is amazing. 65 employees. I would have thought so, there are many more than that. We have, we have about 2,000 active volunteers in Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. they do, they do the, the real work out there in the communities. They're the ones transporting blood. Uh, they, do that, they transport blood. They, they transport uh, trailers during natural disasters. They transport food, uh, blankets. They, they're the ones talking to clients after home fires. Uh, our volunteers, they do amazing work. Uh, it's, it's a great, if you really want to feel valued as a volunteer, and, in, and if you have that desire to, uh, to get out there and do work, uh, we really encourage people. We have lots of opportunities in the Red Cross where you can really get your feet wet and dig into real work and do real good in the community. That is excellent. Jeff Hall, Communications Specialist for the American Red Cross. How about, um, I mean, I know donations are always welcome. Uh, people can give uh, yearly. They can send money. They can, uh, um, you know, put it in their uh, annual uh, uh, stipend. Uh, there's so many ways. Um, do you guys have regular fundraisers where you know you're at an activity or an event and the primary goal there is to solicit funds and of course educate people on what the red cross does uh, we normally don't run fundraisers at events uh when we have large natural disasters say a hurricane or a wildfire in a certain part of the country uh we will open up a designation uh we call it so if people are compelled to give financially to help people, uh, if they want to give directly to the people affected by that disaster happening that they're seeing, uh, we can do that. We can make sure that that money goes to help people affected by that disaster. Uh, but we don't really we don't really hold fundraising events. Uh, we have we have different uh, small groups that do their own fundraising. Uh, but generally, you know, we're always we're always looking for uh, financial support. Uh, you can do that through our website or by calling one eight hundred Red Cross if you feel compelled to make a donation. Uh, you know, we know some, and we know that's why we offer volunteering too, because we know not everybody is financially able to donate. But if they still want to do real good in their community, they can just volunteer ten hours a month to helping the Red Cross, and that. The, those 10 hours go a long way in helping us do our job. It, it, it's just not a money component that makes, that makes our organization run. It's, it's the hard work of our volunteers every single day that, uh, that go out to these to help people in need. Well said, well said. Um, Jeff Hall with us on the uh, phone lines. He is the communication specialist from the American Red Cross. Um, this latest spike in uh, COVID cases, although the symptoms may not be as, you know, as great or as significant, um, is causing a lot of hospitals to go back to masking uh, a lot of uh, hospitals are requiring masks and a lot of different procedures. Um, is the Red Cross also part of possibly 
helping with vaccination efforts, helping with people who may need help in a variety of ways if they do uh, have COVID? You know, back in 2020, we had a very, and, it, and I don't believe we did that in Massachusetts. Some, in some areas of the country, we had a very limited uh, involvement in helping uh, vaccination clinics. Uh, I, I don't foresee that happening uh, in 2024. You never know. Uh, but we work with our partners, the uh, MEMA, Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. We work closely with them uh, to try to augment any way we can. Uh, they know what we're good at and, and what our volunteers are good at and how that fits into the statewide emergency plan. So if you know, they're our primary point of contact in Massachusetts, and uh, and they reach out when they need us. What if you know if there's a natural disaster, they reach out to us to help get shelters set up. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's our primary. That's that's who pulls our the, the lever for us to work in those type of situations. We just work closely with state agencies mm-hmm. uh, to make sure. But yeah, I read that this morning in the paper that uh, hospitals are looking to to start requiring masks. I know I'm just getting through a really bad RSV cold <laughs> myself. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's it, the cold and flu season is no joke this year. So, uh, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's been, it's been difficult on my family personally. Yeah. I know that, uh, when you read about or see on the news, the national news, disasters of any kind, house fires in the Massachusetts area, um, evacuations, even, tragically one of the most uh, just the most uh, disheartening and sad things that's happening in our society are these school shootings or mall shootings or wherever these uh, people are gunning down people the latest was up in Maine um, in Lewiston Maine just a few months ago in October Uh, the minute you read about these you don't even get to the second paragraph And there it says officials from the American Red Cross are on scene to help with uh, displaced people, to help with, uh, you know, emergencies in the hospital. Uh, So many different uh, things that the Red Cross does when it comes to these disasters. And as you say, that is really uh, the crux, uh, the core service for the Red Cross. And for that... You and several other people uh, in the Red Cross should really, really be applauded, and we we salute you really because of that kind of work. Yep, we do a lot of behind the scenes work, and you know we we're proud of of what our volunteers can do and their and their willingness to step forward to help people because that's we're we're a people organization. We we look to do real good in communities where we can. So it's. You know, it's the partnerships we have with our our local our local emergency managers that know to reach out to us uh, when they think something that we can bring something uh, some service to help people in need. So, you know, those those partnerships we maintain and they're they're important. And uh, our volunteers are they are always lining up to help people when they see see tragedy, no matter what kind it is. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, and that's what you can just you just look to the people that want to do something to help. Those are the those are the real heroes out there that get in there and help the people that are affected. 
Okay, Jeff Hall, communication specialist from the American Red Cross. Do you have an email address or a phone number up in Medford that you can share just in case somebody might have a question or might want to uh, talk more about volunteering or blood drives or anything else uh, in your area or certainly in our area here in the Attleboro area? Yeah, you can reach the Red Cross in Massachusetts at 781-410-3710 or redcross.org slash MA for Massachusetts. Uh, that's got all of our office locations across the state and local contact numbers and, uh, and some email addresses for key people across the state. Uh, but yeah, reach out if people have any questions and certainly reach out if you want to volunteer and we can find, uh, find something for you to help us out. Terrific. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, for educating us again on the importance of the Red Cross, the importance of uh, the critical services that you have, as well as volunteer activities. Maybe one of these days, I travel all over the place. Uh, I do go through Medford occasionally. I'll have to see if I can find, I, I know the address where you are. I'll have to stop in and say, hey, Jeff, it's me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Tom. yeah please stop in. Yeah, it's, so. It's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for All having me. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff Hall, uh, the media specialist from the American Red Cross, uh, with us this past uh, 45, 50 minutes or so. And uh, we will, uh, you know, we'll remember that information and we'll pass it along as, uh, as time goes on. 781-410-3710 is their phone number. And it's uh, AmericanRedCross.org is their, their website. Nine minutes before the hour of 10 o'clock here on AM 1320, WARA. Hey, welcome back. Six minutes before the hour of 10 o'clock on AM 1320, WARA. Tom Rafferty sitting in for Paul Healy today. And Paul should uh, return tomorrow for the Friday edition, I believe. Let me just take a look at the schedule. <clears throat> Paul will be broadcasting from, oh, okay, I get it, uh, high atop one of the uh, beach centers in Hull, I guess. He's going to do a live remote out there talking about the landscape of Boston and all of the other great... It's only, a you know, from Quincy to Hall, it's only, what, 40 minutes or so? That's going to be wonderful. If I could find Hall, I would, uh, I'd <laughs> I would join him, but probably not today or tomorrow. If you'd like to join us, it's 508-222-1320. Coming up next, we have Michael Borg. He is the town manager for the town of North Attleboro. So many things happening in the town. Obviously, one of the most critical things uh, is the uh, recovery and the uh, helping of so many people, over 200 homeowners who had severe damage because of that flash flooding. I saw the pictures uh, from all that rain. Absolutely Horrific. I could not believe what I was seeing. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, 
talk about, uh, you know, the 10 Mile River, what they can do to uh, curtail that flooding. So we'll talk to Michael Borg about that and other things as we move along on this Thursday, January 4th. As I mentioned earlier, nice to be at the uh, swearing-in ceremony the other night for all of the elected officials in Attleboro, city council, school committee, city clerk, uh, city treasurer, and of course, Mayor Kathleen DeSimone uh, had a chance to uh, chat with a few different people who were in the uh, auditorium. What a spectacular, spectacular auditorium. Wow. I can see where the $260 million uh, facility, you know, where a lot of that money went, really nice, really terrific. And I, I didn't, I guess there is a balcony up there as well. I saw the stairway, but I didn't go up into the second level. Uh, I'm wondering how many people uh, that holds because uh, there was quite a packed crowd. The choir, the band, they all did a great job. And it was really a nice evening. So anyway, 508-222-1320. We talked a little bit about about that event and also about, uh, you know, things going on nationally. Uh, uh, the Republican candidate for the office of presidency, uh, Donald Trump, is running into some issues uh, where I think it's Colorado and Maine now uh, have said that he cannot be on the ballot because of the uh, violation of the uh, insurrection that uh, if a sitting president is involved in any way in an insurrection of the government, that they will be uh, not allowed to be on the ballot. So we'll have to watch that closely to see. Um, coming up in our last hour, always nice to uh, get a call from the uh, Attleboro Arts Museum director, the executive director, and the chief curator, Mim Fawcett, will join us. They're having a uh, membership uh, exhibition. These are all uh, paintings, photos, all kinds of great things. Uh, by actual members of the uh, Attleboro Arts Museum. That's going to be good. It's, uh, it started uh, over the holiday time. They had a short break, and it continued again yesterday. So uh, we'll be talking to her. Always love to talk to Mim. Uh, she is so passionate, so bright, and uh, love talking to her about art and the museum and exhibitions and uh, what they do there and all the great events. So she'll be with us right after the, uh, right after 11 o'clock. So we are at just about 10 o'clock here on AM 1320. I don't think we have a break, so maybe I'll just... Uh, toss on a song here and see what we can do and bring in our other guests here. Da, 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 da. Let's see what I like this one. One of the uh, 
My goodness, all these... All right, we are back a couple of minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock, and uh, we have a, a guest this morning who has brought another guest. Um, we should introduce ladies before gentlemen here. Uh, Taylor O'Neill, the Communication and Information Officer for the Town of North Attleboro. Welcome. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, go ahead. Thank you for having me. Got to move up toward that microphone a little bit. There Thank you, go. you for having me. It's You're great to be here. You're very welcome. Welcome to WARA. That's Taylor. To her right is Michael Borg, and Michael is the town manager for the town of North Attleboro. Welcome back. Glad to be back. Thank you. That's good. That's good. Um, so, I mean, North Attleboro is just just up the road. And it's just so different from Attleboro in, in so many ways. The government has changed a yep. bit. Um, tell us, I guess, the first thing I wanted to get into was the flooding. Uh, over 200 homes were yeah. damaged. You took the lead and, and, you know, the emergency management. All Everybody was trying to help. Uh, what is the latest with the status of flooding? homeowners and what might be done with federal funding. Yeah, so on September 11th, and uh, we had a, a culmination of rain events that brought almost 11 inches of rain uh, to North Attleboro. It was like little black rain cloud parked itself over North Attleboro and decided just to let loose. Um, I got a call from our uh, fire chief, uh, Chief Chris Coleman, and he said, hey, we've got some issues here. We've, uh, we're calling an emergency and uh, requesting help from uh, um, other communities, and uh, we want to stand up the EOC. And I said, okay, all right, I'm on my way in. Let's do it. Uh, got in there that night, and uh, we were had dispatch rolling. We had police. We had roads that were being shut off. We had been inundated um, with you know, almost 11 inches of rain in a very short period of time, uh, less than uh, 48 hours. Uh, so I uh, took the action to declare uh, a state of emergency in the town uh, that allows us to, one, do a couple things, start tracking expenditures and expenses uh, on a financial side. You know, unfortunately, there's some of the administration and bureau bureaucratic things that you have to do, um, but we thought it was the right move. Uh, we then began, you know, farming out our resources and collaborating with other communities uh, with their resources to help us and assist us. We were talking with residents. We were communicating. Uh, we were we brought in our, uh, at the time, uh, our PR team that was advising us that we had on contract, and they were helping us put out messaging uh, to the community. Uh, we also reached out to um, Massachusetts Emergency Management said, hey, you know, we've got an issue here and we're looking at potentially opening up a shelter. Uh, we did actually open up a shelter at our high school or middle school, actually. And um, although we didn't have anybody stay overnight, we did have somebody show up. They just didn't stay overnight. Uh, so we were able to provide, um, you know, life-saving response to the fire and police uh, and then coordinating with the state uh agencies after that for assistance in helping us opening up the shelter. And then we started looking at what all the impacts were in town. And I got a call uh, the next morning from the governor 
and Governor Healy came on down, did a tour of the area, walked through. We walked through a couple. We had a couple road washouts. We had some uh, bridges that we were looking at. We had a lot of homes. Uh, we introduced her to a couple of the folks uh, that had been impacted by this. Um, and then we said, we need help, right? We need mm-hmm. MEMA, right, to come in and help us. And, and we were very grateful for everything that they did, right? We had the town council there and the council president uh bringing them up to speed with what was going on in town and keeping everybody informed. Um, and at the end of it, as, you know, the water started to recede and we were taking a look around, we, we started like, okay, what, what can we do better here? You know, we had this event that happened, you know, was it a one in a hundred year event? Was it a one in a 500 year event? I, I still don't know the answer to that, but it sure was a lot of rain and a mm-hmm. real short amount of period of time. And, uh, and we began to ask, okay, how do we, you know, one, assist and, and help our residents. You know, they just had this very traumatic one. First thing we had to do was get all the roads back open. So our DPW team jumped right back into it, uh, started doing some repairs to roadways and, that had been washed out as the water was beginning to recede and, and, and uh, make the, uh, the damage known so we could do assessments. So they were rapidly working on that. Uh, we began a effort to collect all the data uh, of who was impacted by this. So we used our uh, Big Red 311, and that's a, you know, a, a, an online way. You know, if you have a smartphone or, or access to a computer, you can let us know what happened using this uh, app and, and website and tell us about your damage. So we started collecting that data so we could pass that back on to MEMA and FEMA. Because uh, we knew that uh, once the governor then declared a state of emergency as well, uh, the very next day, that the next step would be to get the federal authorities involved. So you've got to go through this bureaucratic um, process to you know get all the help that you can. But we were willing to do it because we knew it was the right thing to do for our residents. And so we started collecting all the data uh, from the residents and getting the extent of how much. And, and then we reached out to other communities. You know, Attleboro, we know they had some flooding down here, uh, Plainville, um, and seeing where else could be. Because primarily FEMA, the, right, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, doesn't focus on municipalities, right? Uh, they work at the county level, right? So they wanted to see what the... Um, impact in the entire county was and if the thresholds had been met uh, to establish a federal disaster. So we began working that and passing our information along and collecting what we had. We had a FEMA team come down. Uh, We worked very closely with the MEMA team that was on the ground doing the assessments afterwards. and it kind of stalled at that point, honestly. I was kind of disappointed in the, you know, the process. It, you know, it didn't seem like it was going to go any faster than it was because I know we had people out there that they wanted help. You know, they wanted you know, responsive action. I mean, I, I, I have sandbags, right? Mm-hmm. But, I, but at this point, you didn't need sandbags anymore, right? <laughs> right? You needed help. So you know, it went before the town council, and the town council was very receptive, and we put $300,000 of our American Rescue Plan Act funds uh, that we had available uh, in the town and said, let's use this for debris removal. Because one of the things that we had with uh, debris removal um, in a flooding situation is you get these enormous piles of garbage, right? Mm -hmm. People start ripping out drywall, carpet, you know, flooring, all this kind of stuff, from their homes and it just piles up. So what we did was uh, we, we got a key location in town and we opened it up and said, hey, look, if you have flood damage, uh, debris, um, 
bring it to us, right? I didn't have a trash truck to be around and go, to be able to go around and pick it up. Uh, but what I did was I put a bunch of dumpsters and worked with the, the, the Board of Public Works and the, the Public Works Director, and we established this and put this out there and said, bring us all your, your garbage so it doesn't have to sit in your yard. It doesn't have to sit on the side of the road, right? Um, and people took advantage of that. So we ran that for uh, almost 10 days. I think it was a little shy of a week, actually. Um, and we found that that was very good, and so we were just making sure that we were getting that out. Because, and then we had uh, Taylor. What was the name of our uh, team that came in um, to help us out to do the, the damage? The the volunteer organization. I can't remember it. I, I'm sorry. Rubicon. Yeah, Team Rubicon. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> it's in the article. Yeah, yeah. Team Rubicon. So mm -hmm. uh, they reached out. We had discussions with Team Rubicon. What a great organization. Um, these are folks that are veterans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they do emergency and disaster response, right? And they volunteered. They came in. Uh, we got the Hockamock Y to, uh, you know, provide a bed down area for them so they could, you know, and then they went out to the, the, the folks that had been impacted and see what help that they could help remove damage debris you know we've got some elderly folks that needed help um, so we were very grateful they came in for a couple days and helped out and, and provided a huge amount of, of support and thanks to the Hockamock Y for all that they did for putting them up um, and then we went into the you know the bureaucratic email you know back and forth about what's next how do we do this right mm -hmm. um, so I know Public Works has been working hard identifying areas uh, that we might be able to do some improvement, looking at our culverts, right? And, and look, if you're a resident and you've got a, uh, a culvert in front of your house or a, a, um, a drain right there, clear it out, right? If you see something backed up, take the, the three or four minutes just to go pull all that crap out of there, right, and just uh, throw it out uh, because that'll go a long way because that'll help the system do what it's supposed to do. Um, but, you know, we do have a schedule that Public Works goes through and does all that cleaning uh, and, and do it. But unfortunately, they don't get to it every day or right before every storm. Mm -hmm. And at, at this point, we went back to uh, um, our representative, uh, Scanlon, right, and our senator, Senator Feeney, and said, hey, look, if a federal disaster declaration isn't coming, um, what can the Commonwealth do to help out our residents that were impacted by this? Um, and I know, uh, and I believe it was uh, Rep Scanlon that led an initiative, to, uh, along with Senator Feeney, uh, to put a $10 million um, line item in the supplemental budget uh, to offer assistance uh, to residents and businesses that were impacted. So I, I do believe that that's got traction and that's going to happen. I can't say when, and it's not a, a guarantee or a promise. And I, I mean, it's not, I certainly don't have any information today on how that might be dispersed. Uh, but hopefully uh, in the, the very near future, uh, that supplemental funding will become available to the residents uh, in response to the flooding. Mm -hmm. So that was what happened and what we did in the, uh, the immediate effect after that. Our next step was um, I had a meeting with uh, Mayor DeSimone, and congratulations to her and a uh, great mm -hmm. speech on her uh, yes. uh, inaugural speech there um, the other day. And uh, Brian Noble of Plainville, the town administrator, and I said, look, we have kind of need to take a 
uh, a smarter approach to you know the the 10 mile river watershed right uh, not all the flooding issues that we had with that storm uh, in September was the 10 mile river but the 10 mile river had its issues right uh, and was definitely a contributing uh, part of our problem uh, and affected all of the communities and North Attleboro had been working pretty hard uh, we you know, had had communication with our congressman, uh, Jake Auchincloss, who has supported us on two occasions uh, for funding in uh, to doing some dredging, right, uh, f- with federal assistance. Uh, because we had looked at the the Ten Mile River and working very closely with uh, Mark Hollowell and Public Works and said, yeah, we need to, you know, we've got, you know, years of sediment build up in there. And uh, he, he, he showed me a picture one day. Uh, Near uh, South, it's a street that goes uh, North Washington, and when the Ten Mile River runs right underneath it, and he put a shovel, a, a, a D-handle shovel, in it, and uh, you could see that the sediment right was almost you know to the bank, top of the bank, uh-huh. right. So you don't have a lot of depth uh, to the, and this mm-hmm. river actually has, I think, only a foot or two of um, decline from. You know, Plainville down into Attleboro. It only the the elevation only goes down like a foot, twelve inches along the entire you know span of that. Uh, so that's a concern, right? Because once it rains, that water's got to go somewhere, right? And it's going to come over the banks, right? And the river had the last time it had major um, upgrades uh, and some culvert work and some bank work uh, was Depression era, where they had actually straightened it out. Uh, put in a lot of improvements, reclaim some wetlands, right, and some swamp areas, right, that now have homes on them, right, mm-hmm. uh, that were naturally, you know, water before. Um, so we've got to make sure that we're doing everything that we can uh, to maintain that. Uh, so reaching out to Attleboro and Plainville um, struck me as the right way to do this. I can ask the federal government for money all day long. It, you know, I, I am this single voice out there, right, you know, representing North Attleboro and saying, how, how, you come, we need money. We need help with this. This is well beyond what the taxpayers and the tax base is able to provide for, right? Uh, and it's in your best interest. And it's actually something the Army Corps of Engineers uh, is very good at and does on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Then working together as a region instead of just a single municipality, becomes more attractive, right? So we had some initial meetings with uh, the Attleboro team, right, with the, the Plainville folks and talk about, because there is a memorandum of agreement. There, there is a couple of ponds, right, small lakes, and a couple of dams that are involved in this whole watershed, right? And when we see water coming uh, at a certain, you know, rainfall, you know, expectation that is going to impact us, we open up the dams, and that water comes into Attleboro. Right. Mm-hmm. But we have to coordinate. We have to talk uh, and communicate with, you know, and we do that at the fire chief level right now. Uh, the public works talks to the fire chief. Our fire chief calls the Attleboro fire chief and says, hey, we you know, we're going to open up the levee uh, and let off you know, so much water uh, until this date and time mm-hmm. um, in advance of any rain. I so don't think it's ever been that high ever in the past, has it? You know, with the flooding, the amount of flooding that took place? It, it, it was definitely caught everybody off guard for sure, right? And it, it closed down a lot of, uh, you know, roads in both towns uh, along. 
And I do think that, you know, dredging is probably one of the potential solutions, right, in doing some, you know, infrastructure maintenance and restoring the riverbanks. Because if we're able to take it down, right, that water will have a little more to build up before it goes over banks and then becomes problematic. Now, um, we also have to be concerned about what contamination might be in that mm-hmm. that sediment that's in there, right? Uh, we need to work together with Attleboro and Plainville because if North Attleboro, let's say for whatever reason, and we got lucky and got funding from the federal government, we're able to dredge our portion of the 10-mile river. Well, it wouldn't do any good because all the sediment from Plainville would steep, uh, still keep coming downstream, flowing to here, and then we'd have that same problem back in a matter of a year or two, and then it flows back down into Attleboro, and they have the same problem. So we've got to all work together, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to make sure that our congressmen, right, our senators, uh, our state reps, right, and our state senators understand that this is not just a North Attleboro problem. It's not just an Attleboro problem. It's not a Plainville problem. It actually goes right down into Rhode Island, right, mm-hmm. uh, that we all need to work together, right? And what I'm proposing and what I've uh, sent a draft uh, memo off to uh, both Plainville and Attleboro is, hey, let's form a, a joint committee to take a look at this, share our resources. Let's start looking at the data that we have about, you know, where we flood, and what if we did this infrastructure improvement or we did this modification to a dam, what's the impact on yours? I can't act alone in this. I have to work with them. You know, I can't willingly say, all right, we can open up the floodgates in North Attleboro and and, um, to heck with Attleboro. Just doesn't work that way, Mm -hmm. right? Because I know Mayor DeSimone would be calling me and be standing on my desk the next, you know, 10 minutes saying, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is, the, is to pull together as a team, look at how we can all come together and solve the, uh, the 10 mile river issue. Mm-hmm. But dredging has got to be a part of that solution. I mean, when I saw that, that, that shovel was almost at the top of the bank, right? And not very deep into the water. It told me we had a sediment problem, and we need to address that. Okay. Michael Borg is my guest, the uh, town manager of North Attleboro, along with Taylor O'Neill, communications and information officer. We will be back. We have to take a short break for some underwriting announcements, and we will continue. Uh, By the way, uh, listeners in North Attleboro, if you were affected by this or have a comment or a question, The town manager is here, Michael Borg. He certainly uh, is well capable of uh, talking uh, more about this issue and others. So please give us a call. 1-508-222-1320. We'll be right back. It is 23 minutes after the hour of uh, 10 o'clock. 36 degrees. I see a little bit of sunshine on the outside. Waiting very patiently over there is Taylor O'Neill. I just want to ask her a couple of questions. You've been experiencing all of this emergency. You've watched uh, Michael in action. What is your reaction to all this? What is, are you like actively uh, you know, working uh, in the background, or how do how do you help situations like this? So, a big aspect of the town of North Attleboro's response is communicating what they're doing to their community members, making sure they're informed with timely updates, 
when needed. Whenever there is a EOC or something that rides to the level of our emergency advisory board being activated, I'm involved in those conversations. Mm -hmm. I'm providing some strategic feedback to make sure that whatever information needs to get out to the public, we get out in a timely fashion, in an accessible fashion. So regardless of if maybe you don't have a TV service, you can make sure you can get on our town website, our town socials, mm -hmm. all different channels we're using. Wow. Okay. So you are kind of the liaison between events that are critical to the public and getting the word out to everybody. So I guess it's natural that she's sitting right over there with a broadcast microphone and everything. Um, how long have you been in this capacity? I joined North Attleboro at the beginning of December, so I mm -hmm. haven't been in the position too long. And prior to working with North Attleboro, I did similar roles for a mm -hmm. couple different municipalities. Okay. Are you, do you live in that local area or are you from out of town? Unfortunately, I'm not a North Attleboro resident at this time. It's an amazing community and I'd love to be, but I live mm -hmm. in Taunton, so not too far away. Yeah, Taunton, and certainly Taunton has its uh, issues there too with rivers going through the city of Taunton. So, yes. uh, yeah. Um, Taylor O'Neill, Communications and Information Officer, you, you work closely with Michael. Uh, is there a time every day that you share information with him? Uh, do you kind of shadow with him on certain events? Yes, yeah, so we're in constant communication throughout the day. I shadow Mike at a lot of different events. I can also be found popping in and out of his office at all times just to make sure that we're on the same page, we're communicating the correct message and making sure it gets out to everyone. Terrific, that's great. Um, and Michael, uh, you also, I mean, a day in your life has got to be pretty hectic. There's always, always news out of North Attleboro. It doesn't, if it's the schools, if it's the, you know, uh, the town, the way it's situated now, Justin Pear and that group. Are there seven of those folks right now? Seven, correct? Nine, nine counselors. Oh, nine. Wow. Nine counselors. I yeah. looked on the website and I, Justin Pear and, you know, I, I, I looked at everything. I only had seven. Why did I think seven? I'm not sure. So, I, I know we had uh, two new counselors come yeah. in uh, at the last election. So, Is that form of government working? I mean, what I read is you have worked with them to streamline government, to help with uh, um, the budgeting process, so many new things, and things are working well. Yeah, uh, look, I, I'm going to be biased in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that the form of government that North Attleboro adopted with a strong town manager and town council um, really does uh, work well. And uh, if you ask me what the, the biggest impact is, it's been the flexibility of governance and mm -hmm. how it's able to respond uh, to a number of situations rather quickly. Um, Instead of having, uh, you know, the um, RTM and the town meetings, right, they meet uh, the town council, uh, replace the RTM, and meets every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go before them, and we're able to draft legislation and move measures, uh, make financial decisions uh, very quickly. 
Um, and like when you know, we were just talking about the flooding, you know, the council president was right there with me. I kept him and uh, the town council informed of everything that was going on in our responses, right, and, and gave them updates about, hey, this is what the response is. And they were also feeding me information. Here's what we're hearing from constituents. So mm-hmm. it, it is a collaboration and a joint effort uh, on, on both parts. They represent the town council is the legislative uh, body of the town, uh, and the town manager is the administration uh, and chief executive for the town. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it does uh, streamline a lot of uh, decision makings, right? Uh, it, it kind of remove some of the roles of previous boards that had uh, responsibility over personnel and consolidated it all under the town manager Mm -hmm. uh, and made that part of the job um, a little more consolidated Mm -hmm. under human resources. Schools are still separate, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, according to Mass General Law, right, and the superintendent and and all of those folks work with the school committee. That There's no changes there. But the budget process um, uh, is – you know, consolidated under the town manager by the town charter, right? And I have a requirement uh, to fulfill uh, that's outlined in the charter of what we do and how we provide it. Matter of fact, uh, next uh, Monday on the 8th of January, we'll be doing an update on the town's financial situation. I call it the state of the town uh, address that we'll provide to the the town council and the community. Um, But we were able to do a lot with our budget, uh, in the, the couple of years that I've been there. Matter of fact, we moved our um, credit rating uh, from AA to AA positive, right, uh, which was an increase uh, because of the good financial sound management and practices and policies that, uh, with you know, working closely with the, the town council and the finance committee, the finance subcommittee, we were able to put into place uh, and got the attention of all the creditors of how well North Attleboro was really doing as a community. And, you know, some people will say, okay, well, w- what does that really mean? Uh, well, that meant right then when we go out to borrow money and all municipalities borrow money, right, mm-hmm. um, and, and we'll probably borrow some money to work on the 10-mile river uh, and some other flood mitigation measures, I'm sure that'll come. But what that means is we're borrowing it at a lower interest rate. We're saving right now because of our current um, interest rate of about 1% on every loan that we take, which adds up to hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars over the life of those uh, loans. And it's not like your house mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we do borrow for like 30 and 20 year periods, depending on what we're borrowing for, Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not allowed to pay them off early. Right. So, you know, even if we had the money, uh, we can't do that because, you know, the people that lend us this money, they want to make sure they get their interest. So it's in our best interest and the residents and the taxpayers in the business best interest to make sure your town has the highest, best credit rating because that's going to be attractive to those folks that are going to lend you money and you will pay less over the life of those loans. Very good. I I didn't know that, that. You can't pay it early. Can't they just add the interest to it and you could pay it off? Well, there's no? a, yeah, well, there's a couple of ways you can structure the loans, right? And, and again, I would leave that to like the town treasurers and those folks mm-hmm. to, to take. But uh, in the conversations that we have with our financial team, we look at the best way, you know, what makes the best sense? Do we pay interest up front or do we pay it on, you know, as a level monthly payment or annual payment uh, for these loans? So, mm-hmm. uh, and then we cap ourselves, you know, we, we have a self-imposed credit limit uh, that we say we only want to commit, 
you know, so much of our budget to making loan payments Mm -hmm. because the rest has to go to operating costs. And we've got Mm -hmm. to fund salaries, right, Uh, and benefits. Like, you know, you might be surprised that, you know, for most municipalities, the the single largest expense um, is health care. Right. Sure. Right. Healthcare, uh, you know, and depending on how, you know, your your community and the program and plan it has. Right. Healthcare is not an inexpensive uh, endeavor, but it's something that you want to be able to provide uh, to attract, you know, good quality candidates, people to come work for you. Right. Mm-hmm. So you got to take a good look at it. But, you know, there are ways that you can, you know, manage uh, health care at the municipal level uh, to be able to. T- and, you know, we just recently entered into a um a health group with the town of Plainville where we combined our two pools of employees in order Mm -hmm. to save money uh, and become more attractive to the service providers out there so we could get better rates for our employees. That is excellent. So their employees and North Idleboro employees are now in one big group where you get a better rate, obviously. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, awesome. so we're always looking for the, uh, you know, opportunity to regionalize where mm-hmm. it makes sense, right? Look, there are certain things in North Attleboro that are always going to be North Attleboro, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and nobody's looking to change that. But there's other areas. If we can save the taxpayer monies, right, provide a quality service to our uh, residents and, and attract great employees, right, then we're interested. We want to take a look at it. We want to mm-hmm. look at what the potential and the, you know, but, you know, we need to make good, safe decisions that kind of drive the bottom line mm-hmm. and produce the best results for the taxpayers. That's excellent. Michael Borg, the town manager of North Attleboro, is my guest. If you'd like to join us, it's 1-508-222-1320, along with Taylor O'Neill. Communications and Information Officer. Uh, one big issue that Attleboro has experienced it, North Attleboro, other communities, is the, you know, these, uh, I don't know if the word migrants yeah. is the right word, but these are people coming in from another country who are settling in. Uh, you've had your share in North Attleboro. I think yeah. there's been. 70 or 80 people now? I think it was uh, 60 at one time. 67 families, uh, right around 182 oh people at the end gosh. of it. Yeah. And we do call them migrants. I mean, they are, you know, um, you know, families that have come into the country and they've been granted uh, status uh, mm-hmm. that has been accepted by the federal government. So if you're in this sheltering program here in Massachusetts, right? It's my understanding and everything that I've been told and everything I understand about is that you've been granted a... Hold on for a second. Sorry about that. Go ahead. But you've been granted a uh, a status awaiting determination of what that final status will Mm -hmm. be uh, for your application. So um, then they were placed into this sheltering system uh, because of the... uh, uh, the law that exists here in Massachusetts, and they were put in uh, a hotel in North Attleboro. Mm. Um, so I accepted that at face value. But that's it, costing the town a lot of money. It actually is not costing the town any money, right? Really? Uh, uh, well, well, look, I guess you can make an argument that, you know, the kids that go to schools, right, that there's an impact there, uh, that there's a cost, and that's true. Uh, but the Commonwealth has agreed to a... a uh, 
an increase in the educational um, money that they provide to the, the town to compensate for that. So that uh, that's in place and expected to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had, you know, essentially 67 families put into a, uh, a lodging establishment that was really designed for transient uh, occupation, mm-hmm. right? It, it wasn't designed for a long-term stay, right? You're not going, it's not like the extended stay and you can stay there because it looks like an apartment for uh, six months. That's not what these rooms look like. These are your standard, you know, hotel room, bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, two queen beds, two double beds, whatever it is, king-size bed. And they're placing families. And that, that's where I had, you know, some initial concerns is that I don't think the infrastructure exists in this facilities to do this in the long term. Because we had been originally told that, you know, we didn't know how long this could be, right? Uh, and as we began to interface with some of the migrant families, you know, we would ask, like, when is the court date that you were given to, uh, to determine your status? And some of those were being told, you know, a year, a two years three years from now and in different parts of the country. So we, you know, we kind of raised the red flag and said, is it best to have these folks, if they're court parents, they either have to get the legal system to change and make it something that's more appropriate if they're going to stay here, or should they be relocated into areas uh, that are going to be able to support them with their coming leave, or does that happen at a date as it gets closer? And it was just a lot of unknowns. So we looked at the the Commonwealth and the federal government said, hey, you you guys got to help us. You can't just mm-hmm. deposit, you know, 67 new families into a very small space, right, and uh, and expect great things to happen, mm-hmm. right? And because a, a majority of them did not have work authorization. And that was the one area that I quickly became involved in, and I had reached out to our congressman and said, uh, Congressman Auchincloss, we need your help here. This is a, an important issue to the town, right? Um, I accept at face value that the, the migrant families have a legal status and are here for a reason, and the Commonwealth is funding that stay. That's not costing the town anything. But to say that there's not an impact on the town or the school system, that's, you know, that would not be entirely correct. So mm-hmm. the Commonwealth stepped in on the school side and was helping with that and transportation. They assigned a National Guard team. They mobilized a number of National Guard folks. And then I went back to the congressman and said, but look— I got 67 families here. Uh, if they don't find a job or if they're not going to be able to work, how can they contribute back to the system that is paying and supporting them right now? I said, if they're on the pathway to citizenship, and if that's where this ultimately leads for them, and I don't know that what the case is, and I don't know if that's what's going to happen, with, but if that's the case, well, what kind of citizens would we like them to become? Right? Would we rather them be citizens that understands that, hey, hard work pays off, right? And almost everybody that I met in the, uh, this you know, hotel, they all wanted to work. There wasn't anybody that was backing off or shying away. So I had the conversation with the conference that how do we speed up the process to get them to be able to work? There are signs all over North Attleboro that say help wanted. We see that today. I mean, even driving here to the, the station today, you know, you will come across a couple help wanted signs, right? There are jobs out there. And what we did is I said, look, you've got to be able to, you know, we don't want them to sit in a hotel room 
for the next 18 months before they would be authorized to work. If we can put them to work now, it just makes sense to have them pay back to the system that is supporting them now because the Commonwealth was actually providing them funds and assistance for subsistence and clothing, right? They were paying the lodging fee for the places that they're at. If we weren't able to prime, they were going to go out and find jobs. I have no doubt about it, Hmm. right? I have no doubt whatsoever that they probably would have went somewhere and potentially have been paid under the table. And, And if you're doing that, well, then you're not paying back into the system that is paying and supporting you, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it seemed to me the one area where I think um, that I could have the, the biggest influence and the biggest impact on the migrant situation in North Attleboro was if you were willing to work and we could get you work authorization, could we find you and help you find a job? So mm-hmm. that's kind of where we focused our efforts. Uh, we had a couple, of, uh, you know, and one employer that stood right up and said, hey, um, I got some openings here. I'd love to give a couple of people a chance. We were able to do that. We actually were out at that um, mm-hmm. Bell's uh, powder coating the other day uh, and took a tour and got to see the jobs that they were doing, gainfully employed, right? Making uh, a paycheck and a living and paying back into the system that was supporting them, right? Mm-hmm. With I, what I hope is the eventual goal of taking them out of that system if they're, you know, granted, you know, citizenship one day, if that's the end result. And then they're now a productive member of society uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a complicated topic. There, are, there are, it seems like there's a lot of polar opinions uh, mm-hmm. on this, right? From my perspective, it was I just didn't think it would be right to have 67 families, people that wanted to work, sitting around, mm-hmm. not paying back into the system that was supporting them. Very good. Um, the number to call is one 1320 and we have Michael Borg, the town manager of North Attleboro here, as well as Taylor O'Neill, communications and information officer. When you see these kind of issues happening in the town, um, you're a bright young lady. What do you, do you, you have your own thoughts, opinions, feelings about all this? How does it affect you? Of course, I have my own thoughts and feelings, but luckily the team at North Alboro, how they feel is pretty much in line with exactly how I feel. So it makes it extremely easy to communicate that. Mm-hmm. It's not that we have different opinions and I'm struggling to share those with the community. Mm-hmm. We're on the same page. We're truly looking out for the migrants, all of our community members' best interest and in doing so through communication, it's really mm-hmm. easy to get our messages across. Sure. What is your passion? Um, you you have a lot of different facets to your job. What is it that really, really makes you passionate and loving what you're doing in the town of North Attleboro? It's making connections. At the root of communications, you need to establish relationships. You need to establish that trust so people know they can come to you and get the correct information. And one of the major aspects of my job will be becoming that person, that community members, town employees, outside media know they can come to me, get the information they need, and feel comfortable doing so. So mm-hmm. I look forward to really going out to events, different opportunities, meeting people, having the chance to talk to them, hear about maybe what they want to know about and they're not getting, or maybe what they are getting and don't want. Mm -hmm. So that way we can tailor our approach to fit the needs of our community. Terrific. Well, we're happy that you came in today with uh, 
Michael Borg and Michael, uh, the town manager. There's a couple other things that sure. I wanted to cover very quickly was uh, the Fisher College building. Yeah. That was moving forward, kind of put on hold. They found some contamination in the building, but now I guess they have tested again, and it looks like the air is clean. Uh, you want to put a senior center in there. You, yep. There's also, uh, they want to put a food pantry in there. They are, already have a daycare. Right. Is that going to happen within the next yeah. year or so? Or? Yeah, we've wrapped it up. Actually, uh, mm-hmm. we've closed on the building, and we are the owners of the building. Um, and we were able to wrap that up right at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, we, In our due diligence as a part of our procurement for the uh the town, we had to do some environmental testing on the, the mm-hmm. site, right? We did find that there was a vapor hazard that DEP, you know, the Department of Environmental Protection here in Massachusetts, had uh, identified as a concern. And so we're going to install a uh, sub-slab uh, ventilation system. It's kind of like um, radon in your mm-hmm. house, right? And I don't want to – look, I'm not belittling radon. Radon's a serious thing, and if you have it in your home, please, you know, take the right steps to mitigate it. And that's what we're doing as a town, right, because there is a daycare. Uh, Scribble Time is the daycare that's in that building, mm-hmm. and it's a huge provider uh, of daycare services in North Attleboro. And we didn't uh, want to – disrupt that. So when we were purchasing the building uh, from Fisher College, we, we didn't want them to leave. We didn't want to upset that, right? Uh, because we could do, we felt we could do everything we wanted with that facility and building and keep them as a tenant uh, in that space and providing that key and essential service to town. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to do that uh, in, in the next month or two, start working to get that done uh, and underway. Uh, the roof had just been replaced, so that's good news. There are some uh, modifications that we'll need to do to the building to bring it up into, uh, you know, code and compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to put in a sprinkler system. we got to make some ADA accessibility, um, and then we're going to configure it. And we're excited to bring in, um, you know, a regional food distribution center as a part of it. Uh, so we used the American Rescue Plan Act money. So we, we had $5.2 million from Bristol County. Mm-hmm. Bristol County got like $111 million uh, from the federal government as part of that rescue plan. Uh, our portion was 5.2. Um, and what we said, all right, what's the best thing we know? We had this old school building, Allen Avenue, uh, that we were looking at. And uh, that was going to be almost a complete teardown. And the price started at uh, around $5 million before COVID, right? And then after COVID and all the cost run-ups, right, we were looking at seven, eight, maybe even $10 million uh, to do it. So uh, Counselor Dan Donovan uh, came to me and said, hey, look, have you looked at this building? I saw it for sale. And I said, that's a great idea. Let's go do it. Uh, We set up a meeting, uh, got into the building, said, I think we can do it. It has a loading uh, dock already built into the building. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the aspects of the American Rescue Plan Act, right, because it had some you know, restrictions on what you could and could not spend the money on. But if you were going to spend it on uh, food distribution, you got the green light. Uh, but it was more than enough space for the food distribution. So uh, you still had to have the building to be able to do it. So we got the green light for the funding uh, as well. And we then seized on the opportunity to move our senior center uh, from its current location in an old Victorian building, mm-hmm. three floors, uh, 
into this facility as well once it's done. Um, we were also very fortunate to, to partner, and we're working out all the details now with the Hockamock Y, because mm-hmm. uh, they've got an outstanding um, food support network as well. As along with the town of North Attleboro, uh, Lenore's Pantry uh, has been providing uh, food security assistance mm-hmm. for a number of years. Uh, and as a result of COVID, we saw an increase uh, in the demand for people asking for assistance. It, it literally, during COVID, it tripled, right? Uh, wow. It just went through the roof. And it has not backed off, right? So uh, taking that, we're going to build, you know, we're going to try and replicate our best, you know, grocery store that we can with the donations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also, you know, we want to attract the attention of uh, the Boston Food Bank, right? Uh, because... Part of our concept is I think there's a partnership that we can have with the Boston Food Bank as well in becoming uh, a distribution point for this entire area here on the South Coast, right? Sure. That we'll be able to work uh, in this entire area and have a point where, you know, it doesn't have to be in a warehouse in Boston. It can be pushed down closer to the, you know, the, mm-hmm. where it's needed uh, in, in, you know, that last mile can happen right from uh, North Attleboro. So that's what we want the building to turn into, right? We're starting to do that now. Uh, we, we closed at around $2.2 million uh, for the purchase of the building. And so we've got about $3 million left of that uh, original funding source mm-hmm. that'll go into, uh, you know, doing the EP, you know, the DEP, mm-hmm. uh, you know, vapor prevention with that sure. sub doing the ADA accessibility, mm-hmm. creating the space for the senior center, right, and creating the space for the regional food distribution, right? Uh, so it was a win-win. I didn't have to go back before town council and say, hey, you know what, we wanted to do Allen Avenue, which is down on the you know other end of town mm-hmm. right, where the seniors really aren't, right? Most of them, this was just almost in the geographic center of town. It just made sense. Uh, it was a really good purchase for the town, and we're really looking forward to what that's going to be. Sure. Now, uh, speaking of the mall and that area of town, I know you have met with Mayor Kathleen De Simone, yeah. and you and her are in the midst of discussions on joint ventures like moving the registry, having a combined collaborative fireworks, which would be yeah. awesome. Um, tell us about that discussion and, and where it might go. All right. So the registry, for the record, right, that that's, mm-hmm. you know, was an idea that I've been, you know, working on for a while. And I shared it with her. And, you know, I I don't know what the what it would take to move the registry out of Attleboro. Mm-hmm. But um, if it makes sense and, you know, and I'd like to work with Attleboro and figure out if it does, right, I, I think we could probably find a uh, – um, a great space for it at the Emerald Square Mall, mm-hmm. uh, probably at low to no cost to the registry to be in that, that space, right? Uh, look, Emerald Square Mall isn't going to go anywhere, right, mm-hmm. uh, in the near future. Now, what it is and what it looks like in the future, that's still up for debate. Um, but I think that if you have something like a registry uh, 
in that facility, right? You're going to draw a lot of foot traffic into it. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be convenient. You could even add and expand and do everything from road testing, right? Make it a full service uh, RMV in that location. Mm -hmm. But look, we would need the support, a lot of communication and dialogue uh, between the Commonwealth and Attleboro uh, to make that happen. Um, I mentioned that to her. I thought it might be, you know, something that if Mm -hmm. they were interested, the other one we talked about was fireworks, right? Uh, traditionally, North Arbor has not had a 4th of July uh, fireworks display, but we've had in, you know, uh, the latter part of July, the Kids Day uh, oh, event. and we have terrific. And I we love have, that event. Right, and it's great. You know, they, it comes in every year. It helps, and it's brought in by, you know, our, our, our firefighters and uh, all of their efforts to, you know, give back to the community, um, and that's a great event. So we do have that. But I was interested in, you know, how could we, you know, look to bring these two communities together sometime other than on Thanksgiving at the football game, yeah. right? And right? they're not all too friendly on that day. No, and go Big Red. So, um, uh, you know, but at the same time, right, I, I you know, it, it just went to that, you know, mm-hmm. aspect of how can – North Adel be, be you know be better right and uh, one we can't do it alone right and it's going to take cooperation and collaboration with our regional partners the other towns and municipalities around us right uh, it, it just makes sense right it, it, and if we can come together uh, and work as two communities uh, to get fireworks right we can do the Ten Mile River too right absolutely right sure so you know there there are some you know. Challenges that, you know, that look, fireworks aren't free, right? Uh, it's probably about, you know, $10,000 a minute, you know, for a fireworks display, and that's just a guess on my part. Um, but at, 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 you know, it doesn't cost anything to have a meeting and say, is this something that we can do or not do and figure out how to do it? So I, I think there's a lot of supporters for that, right? We can find a, a, an agreeable joint location to do this from or maybe even come up with a rotating schedule, right, mm-hmm. uh, where the two communities can come together, right, uh, and take part in a great celebration of, you know, our nation's independence. Sure. Um, one thing, finally, you had mentioned a little bit ago that you are going to be giving a state of the town address. That's coming up rather soon. Have you formulated, I'm sure a lot of what we've talked about today is going to be mentioned, but what are the key points that you might be telling residents of North Attleboro? Well, so the the state of the town address uh, is is a requirement in the town charter, right, that I have to appear before a uh, a joint committee of the town council and the school committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it coincides really with the budget season. And the charter lays out a number of financial requirements. Now, I, I could come in there and throw up a couple of slides and talk, you know, here's how much money we spent, here's how much money we have, here's how much money I think we're going to need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's just part of it. But I think part of what they're asking me to do and what I feel my responsibility is to do is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, Here's what I see. Here's are the things that I think are going well in town and, uh, you know, the feedback that we're getting and what's working and what's going right. Uh, but also here's some of the, you know, dark clouds maybe on the horizon that we're looking at, right, and, and what we could potentially do to prepare for that. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, we recently uh, uh, had the Tri-County uh, Regional Votech uh, vote for a new building, and that overwhelmingly passed in all 11 communities, right? 
So it was able to uh, overcome uh, the, the vote uh, and receive positive support and able to proceed. That's going to cost anywhere from, you know, the start at $278 million uh, today to, by the time it's done, maybe over $300 million. Mm-hmm. And each of the residents in all of those 11 communities are the, the folks that are going to have to pay for that. My job is, well, how do we pay for that, right? Uh, North Attleboro has right around 235 students at Tri-County. We are the single largest population uh, at by, from any municipality at that school, right? So we have probably 25 to 27% of the budget responsibility, where the other 10 communities have the remainder, right? And it depends on what your population there is. Uh, not a problem that Attleboro has, right? right yeah. So, you know, now we're looking at, okay, that's an additional, you know, our estimates, right, based on cost today and the interest rate that they would get if they borrow is about $3 million each year on top of what we already pay Tri-County. And we pay wow. Tri-County $3.6 million as, I'll call it tuition, right, for the 235 students, right? You also have to pay for busing, don't you, to and from? I, th- that's included as a part of, there's transportation costs, right, okay. uh, that's a, a part of it. Um, but it, our bill goes from $3.6 million to nearly $7 million, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we pay for that, right? Uh, you know, it's based on our uh, population that's at the school right now. So you'll hear me talk about, hey, these are some of the things that we can do, right, as a town. Uh, and, you know, somebody could say, well, you could go before the taxpayers and ask them, right? And if the taxpayers say no, well, then it comes straight out of the budget, right? Mm-hmm. I think what we've been able to do uh, in the past three years is um, – build up our budget, create a significant reserve, right? Uh, You you know, with the current proposals that I have going before the town council uh, in this, the rest of this year, we'll probably have close to $13 million in a couple of different stabilization funds, right? Mm -hmm. That was a lot of hard work to do that. Um, But it also gave us the ability to save money while we were going along to be able to afford to pay for Tri-County in, you know, when that vote got passed. So I won't have to, I don't think I'm going to have to go to the council to ask, you know, that this go before the voters. I believe the town will be able to afford its cost of Tri-County, right, uh, based on what our revenue uh, projections are for the town. So mm-hmm. I, I think you'll hear me talk about things like that and the strategies uh, that we might have to do. But I have to underline this, uh, and, and it's important. Okay. The, the town council, right, it's their responsibility, right? They hold the votes to be able to do it. It's their authorities. I have to put a proposal in front of them, much like the, uh, the mayor here mm-hmm. uh, in Alabama. And it's the council that is going to approve the funding and how it's going to work, right? Uh, but if I'm doing my job and I'm working with them and communicating with them, um, we'll be able to be uh, on the same sheet and push forward a a proposal that will be able to bring this. Mm -hmm. I think we, oh, that's my next guest. That's Mim Fawcett. So on that note, we have to conclude, but you are certainly invited to come back again and again. Well, thank you for having us. Yes. And uh, I do thank you also for being here. Did you enjoy it? Was this your first uh, radio uh, appearance? 
this was my first radio appearance, mm-hmm. not my first media appearance for oh, radio. Course, and it was great. Right. Thank yeah. you for having me. You're very, very welcome. And thank you, Michael. Um, you bet. One other, just a quick thing. Sure. When is the State of the Town Address? Do you do that live on their cable it, system? Or? It, it will be live on North TV on mm-hmm. the 8th of January at 7 p.m. 8th of January. And if you want to come in person, uh, it'll be at the Woodcock uh, School okay. uh, building in uh, North Attleboro. Sure. There's a, it's not the biggest conference room, right? right. Uh, but there will probably be a couple chairs there for sure, sure for anybody that wants to show okay. up in person. Continued success to you, and Thanks, we'll sir. talk to you again. And uh, we are, uh, we're just at 11 o'clock on AM 1320, WARA, Mim Fawcett, waiting in the wings. We will return. Okay, hour number three, we are ready to go. 508-222-1320. And... Uh, our next guest is waiting online, and I want to thank her for being so patient. Good morning, Mim. How are oh, you? Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being so patient on the line there. No problem. No problem. Happy to talk to you. Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Attleboro Arts Museum, Mim Fawcett, is with us. And, uh, for a very, very exciting reason, you have one of the one of the most uh, popular uh, exhibitions going on at the museum currently. It's called the Annual Members Exhibition. Can you tell us a little, explain what that is and uh, why it's so popular? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is what I like to call our blockbuster show of the year. And it typically is the largest show we have, not only considering the number of pieces that are on view, but it's also up for the longest period of time. So um, it is an annual show, and the collection period for this work begins in November. But this is a unique show for us because any artist who is a member of the museum has the opportunity to exhibit between one and three original works that have never been shown here before in the gallery. And this is what is called a non-juried show. And what that means is that uh, there is no juror who is deciding whether or not the piece is in or out. All work that is guideline compliant uh, is accepted to this show. And it could be the only time of the year that an artist gets to exhibit their work. And it also is an opportunity for all artists, whether they are professional, whether they are up and coming, everyone gets their work into this show. The guidelines that I mentioned before, if it's guideline compliant work, that that has to deal with the size because we have just so much room here, uh, and we can't, we can't, we're going to have to burst if we accept more work than we can accommodate. So we tell artists to be guideline compliant. Your work has to be no larger than 30 inches by 30 inches framed, things like that. But um, other than that, it, its concept is can be open, um, colors, materials, 
whatever you are interested in showing the public gets into the show, and that accounts for why it is so popular. Mm-hmm. And this year, we have 346 pieces in the exhibition. My goodness, that yeah. is a lot. And they have to be 30 inches by 30 inches, no larger than that. That's correct, if they're going to hang on the wall. If it's uh, three-dimensional work, we have a footprint guideline where the work cannot exceed 24 by 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, because again, you know, space is at a premium, so we need to set a policy for you know, how much space the, the pieces mm-hmm. take up. I, I have a list of, I think, a lot of the exhibiting artists, mm-hmm. and it doesn't say what they're bringing or, you know, the three different pieces of art that they're bringing in. Uh, would you say a lot of these, once it's all, I mean, it's got to be set up because you're open today and people are going to go in there. Um, is, is it mostly paintings? Are we looking at sculpture? Are we looking at pottery? What What are the specifics of some of these pieces? Yeah, yeah. The show is open today. You're right. And we're open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And everyone should know that our admission to the gallery is free. Uh, we have, I would say, for the most part, paintings that, or, or, you know, it's kind of hard to say, but we have we have two-dimensional work that is on the walls, um, and the two-dimensional work could be a painting, it could be an oil painting, it could be an acrylic painting, it could be a print, something that is made with a press, it could be a photograph. Um, but if we're talking about 2D versus 3D, you're right. It's mostly two-dimensional work that is on the wall. Um, in some cases, some artists will call the work mixed media because they'll use a little bit of paint and a little bit of charcoal. You know, So um, these days, especially for this members exhibition, we don't limit the media. Uh, but you will be looking at a lot of wall-mounted work, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in my reading about this event, uh, the executive director at the Marion Arts Center in Marion, I, I, I would assume that's Marion, Massachusetts, yeah. the guest juror is Jody Stevens. Can you tell us about her extensive background? She really, it looks like her whole life has been all art and and. Uh, doing things like this. Is she in a similar capacity there as you are here? That's right. Yes, she is. And yeah, she has a, a, a lovely resume. Uh, and the cherry on top is that she is a practicing artist. She works in textiles. So I do love it when I have a juror who comes in look and, and looks at the work. And by the way, again, I, I said the, the show was non-juried and that is true. You can get your work in. It's not like someone saying, no, this piece is not accepted. This piece is accepted. What Jody did was come in and award prizes after all of the pieces were hung on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jody's background includes uh, working as a curator, working in a number of different galleries, and then also uh, creating her own art. And um, just going back to what I mentioned on that, it's great when a juror has the curatorial background as well as the art-making 
background because there's a very rich appreciation for how many hours an artist takes to create a particular piece and the technique that is used. So there are many ways that you can look at art. You can just be someone who is appreciating the art uh, for its color, for its form, for its message. But then when you have someone who has seen so much work through the years and also created work, that just adds an extra level of, um, of appreciation. Mm-hmm. My guest on the phone lines, Mim Fawcett. She's the executive director of the Attleboro Arts Museum, also the chief curator. Um, and the last time you were on, a couple of months or so, we talked about what the chief curator does. Just as a reminder, can you tell us what yeah. that title means? For sure. Uh, this show that's up right now, the members exhibition, is a, a great example of using curatorial skills. So as I mentioned earlier, 346 pieces are in the show. And when they come in, it looks like an, an art warehouse. You know, I have all of this work that I have to uh, filter through and decide how it should be placed in the gallery. And I could just say, all right, you know, here's all this work. Let's just put it up on the wall. But in an effort to make the viewing experience a little more um, stress-free <laughs> for, for our gallery goers, uh, a curator needs to spend time to see which pieces can be friendly with other pieces, mm-hmm. what pieces are um, carrying a similar message, or, uh, or if they're not carrying a similar message, how do they connect to one another? How do they speak to one another? So I always try to find the relationships between the works of art and then place them in the gallery so that the viewer can, um, can go through the space and see some connections or at least have a through line as they make their way around the gallery. As an art lover that you are, as someone who enjoys the artistic experience, who who can appreciate how much time and effort it takes to put a just a a gorgeous piece of art in front of viewers, what what is your favorite kind of um, art when it's there at the gallery? What's really you know, I mean, you have a broad, extensive knowledge. You have schooling. You've been the director for many years. What is it that you see in that gallery, maybe the, the Ottmeyer Gallery, um, that really, really impresses you? Yeah, I, I'm lately, it, it changes through the years, I have to say. But lately, I am very intrigued with materials, how an artist puts down paint, how an artist um, creates a mixed media piece that could be created with gold leaf and ink, you know, and how the materials work together. Uh, we were just closed over the uh, holiday for a holiday break. So between Christmas and New Year's, the museum shuts down every year. And I went into New York and I visited a friend of mine who is also a museum 
professional, and we went to a couple of museums. And I found myself, it was so funny, I found myself looking at the artwork from the side, um, mostly just looking at how the pieces are applied. Can I see paint popping off the canvas a bit? Um, Really looking at how the work is presented. Uh, So I'm very much into uh, appreciating the art for its concept and its the skill level, but also how it is presented to the viewer, because that does make a difference and how the viewer can engage with the work beyond just saying, oh, that's a handsome painting. Uh, so I, I always joke and say I love to have paintings in the gallery that could scratch my face, that have um, material that can be observed and uh, and and confusing to the the public because I'd like to have people really connected to the work and have them spend time with each piece uh, and a good amount of time. So so give me something that really smells like paint or mm-hmm. has textiles woven into it or uh, or really you know challenges the viewer and that's the type of piece that I'm always interested in. I see. Um, looking at the list of exhibiting artists, I don't recognize some of them, but I do see uh, the very first one. I'm sure a lot, a lot of people know her. She was a, a city worker for a long, long time. She's retired now. Linda Alger. That's yeah, great. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. We, we have... Um, we have names that folks who are local in Attleboro will recognize, could recognize, and then others that they won't. I mean, there are people that are exhibiting in the show that are from California. So you might think, well, how come they're members? And they come to the museum through a national jury show that we do every year, and they appreciate our mission, and they like the gallery space, and they continue to support the museum by sending in work for the member show and also for our flower show. Mm-hmm. So, But then you will see some names of folks that um, Ka- uh, Carol Nicholson is one, too, that um, folks might recognize from this area. Um, Linda is a regular for exhibiting in the members' exhibition. So it's, it's great. It's great to have mm-hmm. that broad representation. Um, and, and we list where everyone's from on the label, next to their work in the gallery. Mm -hmm. So I have had people who have come through to look at the members exhibition and comment on like, well, this is amazing that you have work from Connecticut and from New York Mm -hmm. and, you know, not just Massachusetts, Rhode Island. So obviously some of your membership is out of state, which is nice and really puts you on the map when it comes to, uh, you know, art and it's uh, great, great form and, and knowing that, uh, Attleboro has such a terrific, terrific uh, um, arts museum. I, you know, I, I go back to when, uh, you know, uh, there's been so many events there that have been just uh, eye-opening. Um, one of them was obviously the Ray Conniff. I think we've mentioned this before, but that was quite a day yeah. uh, to have her, fa- his family here and and all of the folks from Attleboro, and that that still resonates with me. Do you still have some of the artifacts that uh, the daughter brought with her? 
Yeah, so Tamara Conniff, Tamara, Con- Tamara Conniff, Ray's daughter, Ray and Vera, uh, was mm-hmm. her mom. Uh, I'm still in touch with her, and in part because I really enjoyed her company. I thought she was wonderful when she came out here with her husband, Kevin. Uh, but I, also in part because she has maintained a relationship with the museum in that she sponsors the Ray Conniff Foundation, sponsors musical performances here throughout the year. And that has happened ever since that exhibition, which is just such an incredible gift because mm-hmm. we're Attleboro Arts Museum, plural, and our focus undoubtedly is visual art. But I try to weave in with our programming as much uh, multidisciplinary effort as I can. So incorporating music, incorporating dance, incorporating poetry, uh, we, we're we always involved in the big read every year here in Attleboro. So language arts and, and poetry would fall under that, but performance poetry uh, we do often. So anyway, back to Tamara, um, that work, once it was on display here, got put into a large crate, and it, it was in storage and soon to be uh, taken out of storage, for display at Attleboro High School. And it's ironic that you're bringing that up because I was just speaking before the end of the year to representatives from the high school and we were talking about how that work will be on display. So it was the foundation and Tamara Conniff's wish to have some space within the new high school uh, where Ray's memorabilia would be on view to inspire future musicians from this area as he was an Attleboro High School graduate. Mm-hmm. So that is something that is in the works. And, of course, the new high school, when when the work was created up, the construction was like getting started. So now that things have settled a bit and the pandemic has, has eased off, um, that work is being considered for its best placement within the school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Mim, we do have to take a short break, about two minutes, and then okay. we will come back. I'll just ask you to stay right on the line there. We'll come back. We'll talk about some of these 346 pieces of art that people will be seeing uh, right through pretty much the rest of the month of January, and uh, we'll delve into the... Attleboro Museum's annual members exhibition going on right now. We will be right back with Mim Fawcett after these words. Tom Rafferty filling in for Paul Healy on this Thursday, January 4th. We're at 36 degrees. We have a little bit of uh, light blue skies, a little bit of cloud cover. Uh, It seems to be warming up out there. And on the phone lines is Mim Fawcett. She's the executive director of the Attleboro Arts Museum. Mim, while this uh, exhibit is going on, the membership exhibit, do you find a lot of these folks that are listed in these on the website and in the pages here? Will they be there to show their uh, possibly three pieces, or uh, do they leave it up to you and your staff to to kind of give them the tour? Uh, 
the artists are not in the gallery. Uh, it, and let me qualify that by saying they could be visiting, but they are not serving as docents. They are not um, uh, here for a scheduled period of time. Uh, there are 180 artists that have work in this show, and, and as I said earlier, you can show between one and three pieces. Some show all three, some decide to just, just do one, but there are 180 artists. So we do not have the artists coming in for um, formal explanations of their work. But staff members are always available for individuals mm-hmm. if they have questions about the work, for sure. I see. Do these uh, artists who uh, provide this work, do they get some feedback? Like if somebody is really, really impressed with uh, a piece of art that was painted and is just terrific, um, is there a way to, to contact, email, somehow saying, wow, I was at the Attleboro Arts Museum and I happened to see your uh, beautiful winter scene here uh, that you painted. Is there a way to communicate to them appreciation for what they're seeing? Yeah, yeah. You know, often we have guest books, but and often what we do is, um, just for privacy reasons, we don't give out the artist's uh, contact information, but mm-hmm. if someone is interested in sharing a comment, we have them leave it with a staff member, and then we relay it to the artist. And mm-hmm. that is truly, Tom, a gift for the artist. That is, I would say, sometimes equal to... Uh, an individual purchasing the work, and many of these pieces are for sale. So, uh, so getting to hear what the public is thinking about your art is so helpful to an artist, even if it's just a question on how did you put down your paint in that way, or what material, what type of paper are you using to do this. Even that is a gift for the artist, because very often people are either working in a studio or at their kitchen table or, you know, in, sometimes in isolation <laughs> doing this, and it's important for artists to get feedback. That is why we had over 250 people at the opening reception for this, uh, for mm-hmm. this exhibition, because there was a lot of, uh, well, naturally, with 180 artists, you're going to have a lot of people attending, but there was just a great buzz in the room mm-hmm. with artists talking to artists. That's something that we hear at the museum. Our culture is like, this is not a stuffy place. Mm-hmm. You know, I put name badges on all of the artists. Everybody knows who's exhibiting work. I want people to go up to the artists, and I say that during my announcements, and ask them questions, talk to them. Uh, it really is great for the viewer to meet the creator behind the piece on the wall or on the floor mm-hmm. or on the shelf or pedestal, uh, but it, it really is a gift for the artist to have an exchange with someone that they don't know who is mm-hmm. touched by their work. Um, I'm noticing also that uh, you had a, a beginning session of this uh, in the beginning of December. It was the the holiday portion of this. I guess this part is already completed. Uh, you had unique holiday art pieces created by volunteer artists. That's right. And I see one name there, the uh, librarian, the uh, the head librarian over in the Attleboro Library, Amy Rillinger, and also 
a member of your staff, Abby Rivaldi, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, every year, I think it's for the past 12 years, we've been uh, presenting a, a small, I'll call it a pop-up exhibition of work, and that exhibition is called Art: The Art of Celebrating, and it's trees, lights, and symbols of the season. So volunteer artists will create work and have that on display here at the museum, and it's just a, a, a twist on holiday themes. And I created three pieces this year. You're right, Abby had a number of pieces in, in there. Um, Carrie St. Pierre, one of our other staff members, created work, and um, Amy's work is here. She had a beautiful textile piece. Uh, We had a couple of trustees and a couple of member artists that participated too. And I do want to mention Carrie, who is our accounting clerk in our staff, uh, on our staff, is on front page news on The Sun Chronicle today. She is. Yes. And she is up for Greatest Baker greatest baker award oh my gosh i see it ma'am here yes kelly st pierre who is your accounting clerk wow talk about promotion i know so (laughs) carrie who is a graduate of mass art is a fantastic artist she actually has a piece in the members exhibition a small painting that has sold Mm -hmm. um and she is phenomenal baker and sculptor and those skills translated into creating cakes she's very philanthropic and has donated a lot of her baked work for um, for nonprofits, including the museum and there's a piece on the front cover of the sun chronicle the oh front my page gosh. of the museum and our beautiful mural and um, and she through online voting, is in the running for Greatest Baker. So for all of your listeners, a little Mm -hmm. plug for Carrie to go and vote for her so that she stays in the running and can continue to make her cakes for nonprofits. Terrific. How how does this uh, contest work? It's Buddy Velastro's Greatest Baker. I wonder how many are still in the running uh, for that great prize. Well, it, it is kind of, it's, there's a filtering process. So it's been going on for a while, and there's online voting, and Buddy, most people will know him through Cake Boss on mm-hmm. television. Um, this whole contest has been going for a few years, but you know, there's a series of votes, and then you have to have a certain number to get to the next level. And I think we're in the semifinals at this point now. So she's, mm-hmm. been, she's been doing really well. But we're in the final stretch here, so keep voting because she has some competition, some worthy competition, mm-hmm. but as we all know, she is, she's very worthy of the crown herself. So <laughs> I, I would um, encourage everyone to, mm-hmm. to look into this. Greatest Baker, cast your vote. Yes, to vote for her, you can go to greatestbaker.com slash... 2023 slash Carrie St. Pierre voting. Correct. Wow. That is awesome. That's terrific. So art comes, Tom, that's the lesson here. Art comes in different forms. Sometimes you can look at it on the wall. (laughs) Sometimes you can eat it. (laughs) Yes. That's, and what promotion for the, 
for the Attleboro Arts Museum, having yeah. a local person, uh, cake decorator. That I'm looking at the picture on the front page of the Sun Chronicle as Mim Fawcett describes. What kind of cake? It looks kind of like almost religious or spiritual. Maybe I'm wrong, but... Oh, oh well, it was a gingerbread cake. It was oh. done for our exhibition opening of the member show um, on December 9th. And it is a replica of the museum's building, including our new mural on the side of the building. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, it is, so it's gingerbread on the outside and spice cake on the inside. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that mural has just been fabulous for us. That was mm-hmm. funded by the Volterra family. It's in honor of Max Volterra sure. and created by uh, two wonderful artists, uh, Gennaro Ortega and Luis Toforo. And they, um, it has been fabulous for the museum. Their reaction to seeing the cake was hilarious because they have never <laughs> had a cake um, as a replica of their work. Um, but this is something that um, was consumed quickly, shall we say, mm-hmm. during the members' opening on December 9th. But spice cake and gingerbread. Wow. Now, she must have been on the show, right? It's a continuation. She She obviously had to have been a, a part of a segment of the show. So the next voting for folks is when? Will we find that out? It's, it's happening now. It's happening okay. now, yeah. And, and it, she wasn't on the television show. This is all through, um, all online. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, through, but in time, the winner of the contest, uh, again, several rounds of online voting, so, mm-hmm. um, so it has to happen. But the winner will get... Um, their work on the cover of a magazine. They'll also get um, a very substantial prize of $10,000, which is great, and, um, and the chance to meet Cake Boss himself, Buddy. Uh, so, <laughs> That's yeah. great. I know, I oh know. My it's great. Gosh. And it's super for Attleboro and yeah. for the museum. And um, it's wonderful that the Sun Chronicle was gracious enough to... Um, to do the story and the timing is mm-hmm. just right because the semifinals are happening now. So Wow. Well, yeah. we'll keep our eyes on that and uh, make sure we get the vote in because you can, I guess you can vote at any time. You just have to go onto their, uh, to their website and, and click on to, uh, to her name, I would think, Kelly St. Yeah. Pierre. She's the accounting clerk. She's probably there today, right? Yes, she is. Oh, terrific. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So that's a fun fun opportunity for mm-hmm. her and, uh, and very sweet for the museum, too. So. Sure. Now, yeah. this display, the annual members exhibition, is going on through January 26th, correct? So That's right. People can come into the museum and you're open 10 to 5. I would imagine to see that many works of art, they they got to spend an hour or two there to really get an appreciation of everything. You're absolutely spot on with that, yes. And, and that's part of the curatorial process. You know, I break this down. It's a divide-and-conquer approach I take with a show of this size. Most, most of the shows that we do, do here don't exceed 100 pieces, so to have 300 plus in here, that's, it takes a lot of time to see everything. 
And when I curate it, that's part of the reason why I'm breaking it down into sort of themes or um, concepts so that people can digest all of this work in a, mm-hmm. in a certain space. Um, but most people do, do spend at least one hour, and the part of the, uh, the benefit of having free admission is that you can come back. You know, if you can't make it all the mm-hmm. way through, you can come back. Or if you would like to see something again, because, you know, there was so much for the first pass of going through, you can see it again and not have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have, uh, my office has a large window, and I can see folks in the gallery, and they do spend uh, quite a bit of time in here taking in all of the work and uh, and spending some time in the art. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice. Um, My guest on the phone lines is Mim Fawcett. She's the executive director, chief curator of the Attleboro Arts Museum, located on Park Street in Attleboro. How much space do you have over there, Mim? You mentioned in the beginning that, you know, you're, you're limited with the space, but when you walk in there, it actually looks pretty large depending on, you know, what you have in there. Yeah, it's 3,500 square feet, and the ceilings are 13 and a half feet high. Uh, most of the freestanding walls, all of the freestanding walls actually, are 10 feet high. So through the years, and I've been here for 17 years, through the years I've figured out ways to use the space uh, so that I can accommodate 346 or more pieces mm-hmm. uh, in the gallery but that's a particular hanging style, salon style, where pieces are triple hung sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just one piece that you're looking at in a particular area. It could be three pieces that are stacked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm always excited to place a new show and to work in this space because it is a very flexible space. All of the freestanding walls are on casters, so they can move mm-hmm. around and I can create little zones in the gallery. Mm-hmm. But also, um, you know, I, it, it, it's remarkable to me that even having done this for so many years, close to 20 years, there's always something new that I can try. Mm-hmm. There's always a new way to arrange these walls, to... Uh, complement the message of the show, to let more light in because we have a beautiful window on Park Street. Um, There's always a new way, and that's my challenge that I set up for myself. I don't want to repeat what we just did. I want to make it a new experience every time. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking again about, uh, is she going to be there on a daily basis? We're talking about Jody Stevens, or has she already kind of done her part of the exhibit? Um, And she, does she already has awarded the cash and the prizes to certain ones? That's correct. So she came in uh, for one long day here to look at all of the work and to sort through and and identify pieces that stood out to her. And there were 27, I believe, 27 awards. Some were uh, cash prizes, like a best-in-show type of thing, and others were awards of recognition. Some were material awards from a local, well, actually a national um, art supplier. And she went through to, to identify pieces that really 
stood out and that she couldn't stop thinking about. That's what mm-hmm. I always tell my jurors, because it's always a different juror that comes in, and, mm-hmm. and much more fair to the artist that way that I don't have the same person looking at the work again and again. So Jody was this year's pick, and uh, and she spent quite a bit of time, and you would think you would have to, uh, to really get to know the work and to assess which pieces she believed were worthy of recognition. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very, very good. Yeah. Um, the number to call if you'd like to join us is 1-508-222-1320. You might be uh, a member of the Attleboro Arts Museum. You might have visited in the past. Uh, maybe you have a question for Mim about this particular exhibit. It is going on through January 26th. It is free to the public, and you certainly can give a donation as well. Um, Mim, you, how long have you been the uh, executive director now of the Attleboro Arts Museum? Since 2006, 17 years. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I, I know. And I feel in some ways like I'm the new director, mm-hmm. and in other ways I feel like... Uh, I am an archive. You know, I, I do have um, time spent here, but mm-hmm. we just concluded our uh, 100th anniversary. 2023 was our centennial here for the museum. Wow. So, uh, and that was a great experience, naturally, because that is a fabulous milestone for any organization. Uh, but I learned so much about our founders. They were 10 women. Ten Attleboro women that founded the organization, and uh, and I, I just got to know the museum in a different way uh, through that whole process, through experiencing the centennial. So, in some ways, even though I've been here for seventeen years, I, I feel new from time to time. Mm-hmm. And, that's a, a real gift. Sure. Within any job. Yeah. 17 years. I guess, obviously, you're not going to retire yet. I mean, you're barely 42, are you? You're, you're so young now. I am, you, I am <laughs> so very young. Yes, <laughs> that's right, you know. So at, with 17 years, um, career-wise, I mean, this has got to be really very, very nice for you with your love for art, you're the curator, you're the uh, director, which has a lot, a lot of responsibility with a nonprofit like the Attleboro Arts Museum. Do you have aspirations maybe in five, six, seven years to maybe actually settle down and, and call it a day and maybe have a few years of retirement? Or are you uh, content in doing what you're doing and uh, not worrying about that yet. I'm not worrying about that yet. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. I, you know, there's so much. You're totally right. With a nonprofit, there's so much to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and although COVID has, um, it's not flaring like it was. That was a big deal. And mm-hmm. I, I say that with all sincerity. You know, to be a nonprofit, to make it through COVID to keep going after, um, a lot needs to be addressed. And uh, when I speak with my peers who are directors of other organizations here in Attleboro, as well as other um, arts organizations, we are all just sort of climbing out of that. 
and Mm -hmm. getting our footing. And I think organizations demand attention now uh, in a different way than they did before COVID and during COVID uh, in that a lot of the funding has been taken away. Uh, A lot of the programs that were uh, designed to assist organizations, nonprofits, have been uh, re reimagined back to the way that they were. But, mm-hmm. you know, we still are getting through the bumps of that period. And it's important, I think, for the continuity uh, that everybody sort of focus in and, you know, make our organizations make us as strong as we can be. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to say that it's. I'm thinking in a different way. I, I that was a very exhausting period, um, but you know, there's always much like uh, natural disasters. There are aftershocks, and mm-hmm. uh, and and that's what we're dealing with mm-hmm. here. But but I'm happy to say that we we didn't have any furloughs. We didn't have any layoffs. We were able as as much as we could be open. You know, when we mm-hmm. had shutdowns, as much as we could be open, we were. And um, and our supporters were fabulous, and the um, public was fabulous, and it showed me how much art makes a difference to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, summarizing in a in a in a little bit here, focusing on this particular exhibition, the museum's annual members exhibition, which is going on now through January twenty sixth. How would you, in your best way, uh, tell folks that this exhibition is well worth coming to the museum, spending a couple of hours, and really, really appreciating the art and the work that these artists have done. Right. Uh, this show, and this sounds cliche, but it's really true, is something for everyone. With so much work you are absolutely going to find a piece or ten that you are impressed with. And what I might like, somebody else might not like, or you know, what I think is uh, well executed, somebody else might not even notice. And that's the beauty of having such a blockbuster, such a mega show, that no one walks out of here without finding a piece that's of interest. So considering that, knowing that You'll get to see art that's local as well as not so local, but mostly local, or in New England, um, is is impressive too. And the artists, year after year for our members exhibition, and it might be in part because this could be the only time that people are exhibiting, um, they show their best. They bring out their best, and they want the public to see what they can do. So it's impressive work from from our artist base, and we're so proud to have this range and this commitment from 180 artists to uh, to share with our viewers. So you won't be disappointed if you walk through the door. Absolutely. Terrific. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mim, for the time you gave us and and the excellent uh, descriptions of what's happening at the Attleboro Arts Museum. And I, I wish you the best of this year and much success also to 
uh, your staff over there, Riley and Kelly. I hope she wins that contest. And Ellie Huntress, she's the administrative assistant. Is that, and Abby Rivaldi, does that cover everybody? That's our full-time staff, yes. My goodness. Thank you for mentioning all of them. I think that's wonderful. And, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you too, Tom. Thank you so much. Okay. You have a great day and uh, continued success. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. There goes uh, Mim Fawcett. She is the executive director and chief curator of the Attleboro Arts Museum. They have the current annual members exhibition going on now through January 26th. Um, Each artist can uh, submit up to three works of art, and uh, it's, as she describes, it's art for everyone, art for everyone. So great place to go and visit and relax and see how uh, terrific um, art can be and how relaxing and how you really, really can uh, just sink right into uh, a beautiful painting or, or any type of art that they have. 508-222-1320 is the number to call. Uh, we only have a few more minutes. Tom Rafferty sitting in for Paul Healy on this Thursday uh, January 4th, I believe later on today, um, we're going to have uh, some other great programming, and I'll let you know what that is right after these words. Well, that is going to be just about it for today, Thursday, January 4th. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for your calls today at 508-222-1320. A quick review of the weather, mostly cloudy today, a bit of late sunshine, northwest winds 10 to 20 miles an hour. Tonight, breezy and cold, low near 20 Tomorrow, Friday, high in the low 30s, still cold conditions. And be looking and be weary of a storm coming in late Saturday into Sunday. Snow, rather windy. Lighter snow during the afternoon, high in the low 30s. Really no accumulation at this time, but tune in tomorrow to uh, Dominic Katoya from 6 to 9. Jim Corbin will give you the latest. Thanks for listening in. Have a great day. You are listening to WARA, Attleboro, Providence.